From the Finley Toyota ESPN Studios, it's the Press Box Summer Edition. Come on, football, go, go! Come on, play football! Tyler Bischoff. Wow, you work here? Best seat in the house. Yeah, you do! (laughs) I've been laughing for too long. And Adam Candy. Doesn't this seem like cheating? She's rich. She's cheating at life. On ESPN Las Vegas. No Ed Grady today. Adam Candy filling in. Instead, I'm pretty sure the Raiders are screwing over UNLV football. Marcus Arroyo is saying some ridiculous things. Football season's basically here, guys. We got a football game this weekend for UNLV that actually counts. I think we've officially made it through the summer and the offseason. The first bite. Will Derek Carr survive the season? So preseason game number three for the Raiders didn't instill much confidence in the offensive line, just like the first two, even though the Raiders won the game. First drive of the game, uh, Jared Sidham was sacked in that one. He had his arm hit in the pocket, and the Raiders started, uh, I guess, potentially four of their five starting offensive linemen with Colton Miller sitting out as the left tackle. You still had uh, Dylan Parham, Andre James, Lester Cotton, Alex Leatherwood across that offensive line. Miami, meanwhile, was using their starters. Uh, Alex Leatherwood got beaten on the deflected pass. Alex Leatherwood gave up a sack in the second quarter against Miami's backups as well. Lester Cotton was beaten on a sack. That one Stidham lost his helmet on. Um, You also have Brandon Parker and Thayer Munford who did not play uh, because of injury. So, Adam, to me, the, the thing here is that we have seen very limited chances for this offensive line against other teams' starters. We saw Trayvon Walker in that first game against Jacksonville uh, beat up Brandon Parker a couple of times. And then Miami is the only team to really play uh, their full starters, and the offensive line didn't look great either. We knew it wasn't a good offensive line coming in. The limited chance they've gotten against other quality competition, they've looked maybe even worse than expected. Are we sure the quarterback's going to survive? The offense is going to work with this offensive line this season? How long would you say that you and I have been talking about whether the Raiders' offensive line would be able to make it in 2022, right? Probably since the draft at the very least. Uh, We've been talking about how the Raiders had put together this impressive collection of skill players and that they might not be able to keep the quarterback upright long enough to take advantage of them. And so it's almost frustrating for me as someone who watches the team regularly to say if two jokers from a radio station can see it (laughs) then why exactly can't a front office see it or was it just cross your fingers close your eyes and pray because otherwise I don't understand how Dave Ziegler and Josh McDaniels looked at what was in that offensive line room and thought to themselves yeah this will work out because It's too early for us to take a total victory lap, right? It's the third game of the preseason. We don't know anything about how they're going to perform in the regular season yet. But it's pretty hard when you and I have been looking at that offensive line, in particular at Alex Leatherwood and whoever happens to man right tackle, and we've been looking at it for months and saying, this doesn't look like what's going to be able to allow the Raiders to compete in the best division in football. 
we knew during last season that the offensive line wasn't any good and going into the offseason, before anything in the offseason started or happened, that the Raiders were going to need to address the offensive line, and they did it. They spent money in a lot of other places. They made trades for a lot of other positions, but nothing on the offensive line. And it's fascinating that we've gotten to August 23rd, and the only addition they've made is a mid-round pick in Dylan Parham. That's been the only addition. They've had more guys retire than they've had actual additions to the offensive line with uh, Denzel Good and Richie Incognito. So they've lost even more than we thought they would have at one point during the offseason, and they still haven't gone out and made any sort of addition. Now, there's going to be more cuts today across the NFL as teams have to trim down their roster some more. Maybe there's an offensive lineman that the Raiders like that they go out and get. There was a report yesterday that the Patriots are taking, are listening or engaged in trade offers for their right tackle, Isaiah Wynn, who is going into the last year of his rookie contract but has a $10 million salary due to him this season. So there might be a trade option there or somewhere else. Again, the regular season is not actually here yet, despite us being towards the end of the preseason. But it is, I mean, you look at this offseason, going into it, the number one need, the number one thing that the Raiders needed to solve from a personnel standpoint was the offensive line. And they kind of ignored that while fixing everything else. I guess secondary, they didn't do much there either, but that was pretty much it. It was like, hey, we're just going to completely ignore the primary position that everybody else identified as the number one problem with the team. Well, let's go back if you're a Raiders fan right now. And you're thinking to yourself, yeah, well, doesn't mean you have to have a great offensive line in order to win. So let's go back through the past few Super Bowl champions and see, did they have great offensive lines? Three of the last five Super Bowl champions had PFF top 10 graded pass blocking. They've all had at least to upper half graded pass blocking. But let's also look at who the quarterbacks were, because part of what we've been saying all along is, well, can McDaniel scheme around it? Can Derek Carr get the ball out quick enough that it doesn't matter whether or not there are guys coming to kill him? Which, first of all, ignores the fact that Derek Carr might be able to get the ball out and also get pounded all year long. Like, both of those things can exist together where, oh, yeah, he got the ball out. Devontae Adams caught it and ran for 75 yards for a touchdown. And Derek Carr is laying in six pieces on the ground, and it's not really going to get the Raiders very far this year. So... Who have been those quarterbacks? Obviously Stafford last year. Then you go back, Brady, Mahomes, Brady. Okay, there's Miracle Nick Foles, but of course it was Brady on the other side. Brady, Manning, Brady, Russell Wilson. Like, this is what you have to have if you're not going to have perfection. You either have to have a miracle run where everything comes together, or you have to have an elite, elite quarterback who can overcome it. And I don't think the Raiders have either of those right now. Right, and like the Bengals will be the most recent example that team that people want to use. But like you said, and things going exactly right, the Bengals were in a division with the Ravens, who had some of the worst injury luck that any team has had. I mean, they lost two guys to ACLs on back-to-back plays in training camp before they even got into the season. And beyond all that, the Bengals squeaked by in all of their postseason games. I mean, they barely beat that Raiders team without an offensive line last season that's not really a sustainable run to success it's still a good team and the Raiders would absolutely take just the Bengals regular season from last year but it's not really to me that's not a great example of hey oh the Raiders can just do that because the Bengals did it last year 
that's a a very uh, small percentage outcomes of the Raiders season looks like that if that's what the offensive line looks like. They they were a they were a wild card team. They were a wild card team that got the absolute best of variance all the way along the way in the playoffs too. Like if you want to talk about the playoffs and how far they went, look at the outcomes that they got to get where they got there. It's it's very very low probability and by the way Right now, Raiders fans, be honest with yourself. If I offered you Derek Carr or Joe Burrow, even just for this upcoming season, who are you taking? <laughs> be honest with yourself. Are you trying to start Josh Dubow arguments on Twitter again? Josh Dubow starts and settles his own Twitter <laughs> arguments, uh, especially when it comes to veteran running backs. That's right. Um, so you mentioned that the idea of sort of quarterbacking or scheming around the offensive line. And that, that's the part that I'm most interested in. Because here's the thing. That first drive for the Raiders in their most recent preseason game, the offensive line looked terrible. They still scored a touchdown, right? They still went down the field and scored. Jarrett Stidham made a couple of good throws. They were mostly short and in between the hashes. There was very little outside the hashes, outside the numbers, and very little down the field in that first drive. The other key is that they were two for three on third downs and one for one on fourth downs. Basically... They had three chances to extend the drive, and they converted on all three of those. And that, to me, is the fascinating part about this, because McD I, I kind of believe to an extent that Josh McDaniels is fully aware of what his offensive line is and is fully game-planned to try to coach and scheme around it. But beyond the quarterback play, which I, I agree with you, I don't think the Raiders have the quarterback that's going to be good enough to actually play around that for the entirety of a season – you're probably going to need some third down luck, a really high third down conversion rate, or an aggressive, hey, we're going to go for it a lot on fourth down and convert a lot of those fourth downs because you're probably going to find yourself in more third downs that need converted than most teams because of that offensive line. And so what it's most likely, I think, what it's going to lead to is we are going to have drives and games where Derek Carr and the coaching staff look like they're doing it. They look like they're coaching and playing around the offensive line, and it's going to look like, oh, they, they can do this. Like, they can actually do this. But in reality, they're going to do that in seven, eight games this season. The other half of the season, it's probably going to be a massive problem that the offensive line can't block. So we'll see moments of it, but we're not going to see it consistently over the course of, you know, 12, 13 games where the Raiders can actually be a division contender and probably even be a wild card team because the offensive line is going to give them so many problems this season. And it's a matter of, with what you just said, Tyler, it doesn't take more than one breakdown on the offensive line to change the season. And there are going to be many opportunities in the AFC West for that to happen when you look at the pass rushes that they're going to go against so this team starts off the season with a really really difficult run right chargers cardinals titans broncos kansas city to start the year until they get something of a softening in the middle of the year and then it's going to get really nasty again at the end of the year and they're going to start off facing khalil mack and joey bosa so it might not last more than one game the way the Raiders are set up on the schedule. Also, if you look at from last year to this year, according to uh, Sharp Football Analysis, the Raiders are going to face the seventh biggest jump in past defenses that they face all year long. 
than of any team in football. So basically, they are going to see tougher opponents all year long on the defensive side than they saw last year. Uh, do you uh, believe at all they should trade for Isaiah when the Patriots right tackle going into the last year of his rookie deal that they've apparently been listening to? Why wouldn't you if you're the Raiders because of the fact that you're already all in for this season? It, the Raiders, again, if, and we're going to get into the Kenyon Drake news in a little bit here, but like if the situation is for the Raiders what it appears to be where they're going to be cutting Kenyon Drake and adding to what is going to be the second most dead money on the cap of any team next year, then you have to look at the Raiders right now and say, figure it out and do what you have to do because they still have essentially, what, $22 million of cap space sitting around? Like yeah, They have plenty plus, of room plus, yeah. for this year. So we'll get uh, we'll probably get more into Isaiah Wynn's possibility plus Kenyon Drake and the Raiders' options there. But coming up next... Marcus Arroyo. Oh, he thinks it's not a good idea to name his starting quarterback. Not yet. Uh, we're going to go to the practice, and uh, once we get Saturday noon kickoff, uh, you'll have a guy out there in the game. But both those guys have done a great job in camp. Uh, they'll continue to share reps this week uh, for the majority of what we do. Um, I know everyone wants those answers all the time at every level. Who's going to be the guy? Who's going to be the guy? I think it's all clickbait, but you got some game planning stuff in there, and all the other stuff that, uh, that comes with that, um, the dynamic of one of the guys versus the other guys, a lot of times wherever you're at sometimes plays into it. Um, but both those guys have done a great job, and Cam is, is no slouch right behind him. Um, he's another guy that we're excited that, that's right there ready to go. So both those guys will play, uh, play a significant part in, in the one's reps this week. You're listening to the Press Box Summer Edition featuring Adam Candy. That was Marcus Arroyo. UNLV plays their season opener on Saturday against Idaho State. And according to the weekly depth chart, Doug Brumfield and Harrison Bailey are listed as co-starters with an or between their names. I would say of note, Doug Brumfield is listed first on that depth chart. And in the past two years, the guy listed first when there's an or is usually the one that is the actual starter. But Marcus Arroyo did not actually name a starter. He's refusing to name a starter and went so far as to call naming the starting quarterback clickbait in that comment you just heard. Um, Adam, do you think that Marcus Arroyo believes he's gaining a real advantage by not naming a starting quarterback? Yeah, I really do believe Marcus Arroyo thinks he's gaining advantage. I also think Marcus Arroyo is under the impression that he was nominated as a Supreme Court justice and is going to have this job for life. (laughs) The way he approaches this is as though I am a football coach with a football program and I am so tunnel visioned as to beating Idaho State that none of it matters to anyone else because we, we, we get to the point where he calls it clickbait. And look, first of all, We have a long history of Marcus Arroyo maybe not choosing the exact word he was looking for in the moment, right? Uh, Do we have to go back to the whole moral victories comment from (laughs) last year, which apparently we do because it's been two years and he has two actual victories. So right now you have fans who care about this, right? You have parents of players who, who care about this. It's not just a matter of us as media wanting answers to this frankly he should be happy there is media who wants answers to this considering they're two and 16 since he's been at unlv so i don't know tyler i I, do you think he thinks he's gaining an advantage like because to me i wouldn't see another reason for approaching it the way he continues to 
So someone uh, that will remain unnamed once told me that Marcus Arroyo doesn't actually, uh, not all the time does he actually know what he should be doing as a head coach, but he acts in the way that he thinks a football coach should act, like he's a parody of a football coach at times. And I think this is a good example of that, where he's doing what he thinks a good football coach would do, and that is, oh, if I name a starter, Idaho State might get an advantage. They might know what we're going to do on offense. If I don't, now they got to prepare for both quarterbacks, and we're going into that game with a big advantage. So I, I think it's just, he's just like, oh, yeah, this is what a football coach would do. It's, it has nothing to do with what he thinks is, is actually good for his team. It's just, ah, this is what football coaches do. Because the funniest part to me about him saying it's clickbait and him not naming a starting quarterback, if you look through UNLV's depth chart, he named a starter at every other position. There is no other position where there are co-starters. The, the positions where multiple guys will play over the course of a game, right? You're going to play more than your three starting wide receivers. You're going to play more than your four starting defensive linemen or your secondary. Like all these positions, the backups are actually going to play. But he went out of his way. He named a starter at every single position on the depth chart except quarterback, except the one where if things go well, you're only going to play one guy, not just in this game, but the entirety of the season. And that to me is the funny part. He's clearly doing it on purpose with the quarterback position because the only other alternative is that we're like four days away from the season starting and he hasn't figured out who his best quarterback is. That's concerning from a coaching standpoint, from a talent evaluation standpoint, if he hasn't figured that out yet. And we heard him say at the very beginning of that quote, yeah, we haven't figured that out yet. Yes, you have. You absolutely have. right? It, and it's this frustrated, dismissive, I can't believe I have to deal with these questions sort of thing. And that's why I say he acts like he has this job for life. He, he does not seem to understand the fact that he's 2-16 through two seasons. He's on a new athletic director who didn't hire him. And... If we're really to believe that he doesn't have a starting quarterback in year three, in year three of being in the program, then the answer to what we're asking, does Marcus Arroyo know what he's doing, appears to be no. And that's not something that I think reflects well on him and reflects well on UNLV because the truth of the matter is, if you're going into this season saying, well, you know, maybe it's this quarterback, maybe it's that quarterback, that means you don't have a quarterback, right? If you truly don't know, then you don't have a quarterback. Because if you have two, you have none. And for UNLV to say, well, you know, they have to prepare for the tendencies of this, prepare the tendencies of that. Do you think teams going against Tom Brady know, care what they have to prepare? Like, they know they're preparing <laughs> to go against Tom Brady. That's it. Tom Brady dictates the pace to them, dictates the game to them. It's Idaho State, for God's sake. So the quarterback play, and here's the thing, he's doing it at the most important position, and the quarterback play has been, I mean, obviously the defense has been bad at UNLV, but I think you can point to the quarterback play as the biggest problem in this uh, program's history. So in the, in the entire existence of the Mountain West, right, 13 programs have had a quarterback with a quarterback rating of 130 or higher, and I'm using quarterback rating because we don't have a lot of great analytics that go back over time in college football. But 130 or higher, 13 programs. So what that means is you're talking about TCU, BYU, and Utah being involved there, plus all of the current members except two, UNLV and New Mexico. 
the last time UNLV had a quarterback with a quarterback rating of 130 or higher was Randall Cunningham in 1984. UNLV has not had good production from this position in since the 80s is what we're talking about. And like, seriously, go through it and ask yourself, when's the last time UNLV had a top six Mountain West quarterback? Or like, when's the last time they had a top three Mountain West quarterback? The answer, it, it might be never. I asked some UNLV fans the other day and somebody said Caleb Herring and I went through and looked and again, not the greatest numbers, but like, Yards per attempt, completion percentage, um, quarterback rating, and any counting stats. Caleb Herring, the highest he ranked in any of those was fifth, and that was in completion percentage, right? Like, they have not had good production at the most important position. Part of the process of, hey, here's Marcus Arroyo. He played quarterback in college. He is a core offensive-minded coach. That's going to be the position that he figures out the most, and it's probably been the one that they've been the worst at in his tenure. It's the one they've done the worst at figuring out. And so you go into another season. I was optimistic that they got Harrison Bailey from Tennessee, that he was going to come in and be the quarterback and be the guy that actually changes that trend for UNLV. And he can't even beat out Doug Brumfield, who small sample size, but completed less than 50% of his passes last year. Like to me, there's very little reason for optimism at the quarterback position this year. And I think a lot of it goes to Marcus Arroyo, A, mishandling it and B, just either not being a good talent evaluator or not being a good developer of talent at that position. It is a programmatic thing. That's fair. But at this point, we are now starting the third year, and I don't care what you say about the COVID season. It is the third season that Marcus Royo has been here in terms of bringing talent to UNLV. And so if we're asking, can he bring in someone who's going to change this programmatic problem at quarterback – the answer so far is no. Now, we have a full season coming up here to be able to see the answer to that. But what I look at and see is that if this were going to change, if we were going to have that one really great recruit that blew everyone away, why would we still be playing this game here? Why would we still be playing the, well, we don't know who's going to start game, right? Because I guarantee you the players in that program, no. They've been watching since April. We've been playing this game since April at the very, very least when Harrison Bailey finally became part of this program. So we've been doing this for four months now, and they continue to give us nothing as the people who choose to follow this program. That part to me is still remarkable. All right, coming up next, David Roth joins the show. We are on one. I lost count. Dishwasher watch. David Roth from Defector is with us on the press box. Subscribe to the distraction on Stitcher and use the promo code distract for a free month of Stitcher premium. Uh, David, I just had yelled at me right before you came on with no other context. Ask about a hot plate. So what about a hot plate? That's right, Jared's the best in the business. He's always <laughs> right on top of it. He's, uh, he always knows to ask me right before we start, is anything new and bad happening in the building where you live? Uh, and the answer is yes. I do have to go downstairs and pick up a hot plate that our uh, building management is nice enough to give to us because at some point next month, for a period of time that I don't know how long it'll be, they're just going to turn our gas off. Uh, <laughs> and there's, there's probably a reason for that. You know, like I'm not going to... Uh, assume that they made this decision lately but i have to like um look up you know best hot plate recipes or something like that because it's going to be two burners and nothing else for um could be a week 
could be more than a week. could be less than a week. You I don't know. know. Uh, but we have a new long. super now. So somebody is in charge. It's not like it was before where there was just like a lady with an email address telling you no. So, okay, they told you they're going to turn the gas off, but not for how long? Yes. Does that sound cool to you? Does that sound like something that you would enjoy uh, getting in your inbox from the building that you live in? Because we uh, love it. This is our okay. stuff. This is what we're into. Does your dishwasher work yet? That's not important. That's off. That's off topic. We're talking about gas now. So you won't have a stove. <laughs> no, it doesn't or a work. It's not, we didn't have anybody that I could let let a contractor into the building. I started to try on that, and then there was basically like wait for the super. So he's here. Uh, I saw him moving in the other day. He's got a cat. That's exciting. Uh, so from there, <laughs> that's a question of now it's it's possible. But like this is going to be all in. It's going to be closer to a year, and it already is. But, I mean, like, I'm going away uh, in a couple of weeks. Like, this isn't going to get done until September. At least when they come in to do it, there won't be any gas flowing through the apartment to potentially uh, create a dangerous scenario. David, I'm not sure that Tyler, as a non-East Coast resident, understands the power of the super and just yeah. what, what it means to have a super in the building. Like, I can understand why you might be willing to say, eh, all right, the gas thing, not ideal. We've got a super now, right? We, yeah. There, when you have it, it's almost like a team that drafts a quarterback, and the rest of the team is terrible, and everything is falling apart in the building. But you're like, you know what? <laughs> we got a quarterback. Yeah. It's going to happen sooner or later. We got a super now. Everything's looking up. This is totally correct, and I, that's a very crystalline way of expressing it too, because it's really hard to sort of explain to people like nothing can happen until this guy is here. But also, this guy's hiring his qualifications, his credentials, whatever. It's not anything I know about. What it means is that, like, a, a surly man is going to move into an apartment on the first floor with his family, and then you have to ask him before anything good can happen to your place, and that's just how it is. And sometimes he'll fix stuff, and sometimes he won't. But that's, like, basically, it's the idea of not having had one for as long as we've had one. It's not the same thing as, like, Nick Mullins is our quarterback. It's the sort of thing where it's, like, like without an actual super there, you're not even in the Nathan Peterman zone. Like, it is just you're punting <laughs> every day. Every every down you're punting. And that is, uh, that's a tough feeling for, you know, six months. Uh, I, you know, obviously it's nice to have people to talk to about it on the radio. That really helps a lot. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just get it Thank out. You. Thank but, yeah, it's I a mess. It. I think it's going to improve, but, I mean, I don't know how it could get worse. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate the fact that you get some sort of uh, audio catharsis from us. Um, because, yeah, and your uh, listeners. My God, what a service for them. Yeah, yeah, because Las Vegas <laughs> is full of supers all over the place. It is a city of supers. When they retire from not doing things in East Coast buildings, they come out here to Las Vegas. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was I was at the Jersey Shore last week with my family, and there was definitely a... Uh, I've forgotten that, like, the Philadelphia-adjacent part of the Jersey Shore is, like, one of the many places that people like that go to retire. So it's like I kept expecting to see, like, Mr. Batista, who was the Super 3 Supers ago. Like, everywhere that I went in, like, Wildwood, I was like, he's definitely here. He's eating clam strips somewhere. <laughs> he's he's going to be salty to me about something, and it's going to feel like 2008 all over again. Okay, here's a baseball question for you. How is Albert Pujols good again? I think it's just they're using him to only face lefties, it looks like. And I think that that's for the best. Like, if you can – this is the part where I, I believe him when he says he's going to retire at the end of the season. Um, 
whether he gets to 700 or not. I, just because I don't think there's any – he's made enough money, he's played enough baseball. But this is, like, a, a really good example of how, like, a little bit of platooning can go a long way for a guy that has, like, declined, even as he has. Like, he should not be facing same-side pitching, period. Uh, it's not something that he can really hit anymore. But the, I, to see this – the Mets have done this with Dan Vogelback. that, like, if you can protect a guy that can't hit a certain type of pitcher from that pitcher – then, like, all you have left is, like, you know, the good stuff. And with Pools, it's like, I, I was shocked. The one that he hit last night, he hit one to dead center. You know, and it's against the Cubs, but it still counts. He killed that. I mean, it was like he hit that ball the way that he was hitting baseballs in 2006. And, you know, I didn't see him with the Angels. Nobody really did. Uh, like, you just sort of go there and you're in the phantom zone until your contract is up. But I can't believe that no one thought to try to split him up into the sort of platoon situation that he's got in St. Louis. It might be that they tried, and the only way he's going to do it is if he is 40-plus and wearing a Cardinals uniform, and he's just not going to listen when, like, Dave Roberts or whichever poor sap was managing the Angels in a given year suggests it. But it's pretty impressive. I mean, I'm trying to... Ray Ratto wrote a post about him today for uh, Defector, and it's one of those things where, like, Ray makes the point, and it's sort of, maybe it's prosaic, maybe it's not. If he hadn't signed with the Angels, if he had retired at the end of his first hitch with the Cardinals, he's an easy Hall of Famer, right? Like, he's a probably first ballot type. He had dominated the league for 10 years. The idea that and that there could be, like, a second act, I had given up on that. Like, basically, I would given up on it when he signed with the Angels. He was already sort of starting to decline, and, like, nothing gets better there. But... If he does it like this, I mean, like, I, if he decided that he wanted to, he could have some sort of, like, supercharged version of the Jason Giambi endgame where you, like, let your hair go gray and hang around making a million dollars for five more years. And, like, that, you know, if that's what he wants, if, you know, he hasn't said it yet, but, like, I think he'd be great. If the Universal DH had been around for Giambi, he might still be playing. Right. <laughs> I mean, I feel like he was also great because he – even when the bat slowed down, that he somehow hung around long enough that the guy that was like the peak, like dirt bag of his era, like all of his aesthetics, like he was like an attitude era wrestler, you know, like he was, yep. he was always wet, you know, and he's like just kind of like looking like he just crashed a Lamborghini, just like kind of a, a dirt baggy guy. But he hung around long enough that he was like the veteran eminence, like hanging around the clubhouse, like bucking the young guys up and being like, head up, you know, like junior. When they were like, "Thanks, Mr. Giambi." Like, if I don't know that Pools is going to have that type of vibe to him, but like, yeah, I mean, you think about what, uh, how many years of Matt Stairs they took from us. It really breaks your heart. Uh, Matt Stairs, the the pinch hitter that all other pinch hitters had a poster of in their room when they were children. I mean, it's really amazing how long he was able to do that. According to Jeff Passan, by the way, since the All Star break, Albert Pujols is the major league leader in OPS. His OPS since the break is 1.462. Second is Aaron Judge at 1.257. And then Paul Goldschmidt. Like, this is not just us watching a week of SportsCenter highlights and going, ah, good for the old man. Like, he's really doing something. Yeah. I have no idea how to to process that, to be honest. Like, I saw the bit that I saw right before we came on. Was it, I guess this is the highest... 
a 10 game stretch like OPS wise of his entire career. <laughs> like a career that like again spans back many years includes MVP seasons. The idea that he's just sort of I mean it seems like he's sort of keeping that team afloat to a certain extent. Like Arenado's having a great season and, and Goldschmidt has had a very good season, but it is like there's a lot of of just kind of chaff on that roster and yet like yeah if you, if 40 whatever year old Albert Pools is going to like get you to the top of your division like it says something about the division but it is also like it says something about Albert Pools for sure uh, here's a New York question for you a sports question not about whoever the hell a superintendent is um, <laughs> how convinced are you that the Mets are better than the Braves uh, it's like a sort of a coin flip for me um, and I like I say this and you know everybody knows that I got the Mets fan brain disease like so you Take your as many grains of salt with this as you want. It kind of doesn't bother me that much because I think the Braves are super good. I think that like the Mets have seemed a a tick better uh, than the Phillies, like a noticeable tick better. I think they're about as good as the Braves, and to me, that's like pretty much fine. They're the defending world champions, and they got a lot of really good players on them. Uh, like I don't know, you know. There's obviously a big difference in terms of you know winning the division, and there's an advantage that comes in the postseason with that. Like you just don't have to play as much baseball, and with October baseball, given how much randomness impacts everything in there, that it's like you just want to play. You want fewer chances to have something weird happen to you, right? Like even if you're not the Mets, but if you are the Mets, and you know that there's a chance that like you make the playoffs and then suddenly like a satellite lands on Pete Alonso's head during an at bat and you're like, Oh well, you know how that goes. Like you don't want it. In this case, I think that the Mets probably have a slight advantage over the Braves just because they still got a couple of games in the standings. And I think that like as again, I'm gonna knock wood on this. As DeGrom becomes more usable as a regular starter, like as he, you know, does not need to do the five and dive thing, that like if the Mets are healthy, they're they're awfully good. And I think maybe a little bit better than the Braves, but I've been telling myself nonstop and I will tell you and your listeners now that uh being just as good as the Braves is nothing to feel bad about and uh, you know, whatever happens will happen. Well, it- you brought up the very realistic for a Mets fan scenario of a satellite falling on Pete Alonso's head. Like, if, if you've never been to old Shea, you've never watched Keith Hernandez repeatedly stepping out of the box as planes on the LaGuardia flight path <laughs> were coming overhead, right? If none of those planes ever fell and hit Shea Stadium when they were really good, I think you're safe from the satellite. Yes, I mean, you'd think that, but to me it just feels like we're overdue. But I do think that you know, there's definitely a point to that. Like, they, uh, certainly going to games at, at Chase Stadium, like, you kind of always expected something bad to happen. The stadium wasn't going to, like, fall down. But it was. It had the vibe of, like, you know, a, like a lower-tier subway station was kind of the energy that that stadium <laughs> brought at every level. Like, there's a lot of chicken wire involved. There's a lot of, you know, so, like, yeah, if you survived all of that, um, and, you know, I'd say that surviving it is about the, the most that any Mets fan can hope for. Uh, yeah, I'm not ruling anything out. I mean, I know that they're good, and I know that you know people who are more objective than me have also noticed that they're good. I just, you know, you can't rule out the satellite. Well, he is David Roth from Defector. Uh, David, good luck with your hot plate, I guess. Appreciate it. I will, uh, I'll let you know what the really <laughs> good flavors of cup of noodles are. Uh, I hope we're able to talk to you in the future. I'm just assuming something else will go wrong at your building, and we won't be able to talk to you at some point. As long as I got, you know, some uh, cell phone connection, yeah, I'll be here to 
keep you posted on on <laughs> how things are degrading over here. But thanks, All right. I appreciate you. Have a good one. Thanks, David. David Roth from Defector there. Adam, I'm I'm just envisioning Superintendent basically a more personal uh, HOA type situation. No, it's better than that because the HOA cannot be fought, cannot be defeated. The super in in our old building, it was Mario. Uh, the super can be bribed. The super, the super can be bribed. Can be bought. <laughs> the super can be bribed. Your application can move to the top of the pile for whatever is wrong in your apartment, as long as you treat the super appropriately. It goes back to a simpler time of being able to influence the people who control your home life. All right. Before we go to break, did did you just bribe Mario with money, or did he like like something else that you would just drop off at his place sometimes? Um, I would have to enlist my mother for this story because okay. she's the one who had the, uh, <laughs> oh, you know, God. the most interactions with Mario. Stop <laughs> it, Jared, for God's sake. Uh, no, there was an envelope of cash involved at one point, I, like uh, I believe, for in first getting the apartment uh, in, ah. in Hartsdale, New York, uh, with Mario, the super. And by the way, if you want to make yourself sound like the outsider, keep saying superintendent superintendent that's what we'll keep saying all right we're going to take a break when we come back we'll jump into kevin durant trying to get out of his apartment in super in new york is kyrie Irving a superstar yes kyrie is so okay I, do you I, want like, me to say I, what i think about you i agree okay is damian lillard a superstar i think that damian has all of the superstar qualities but it's hard to put him in it in this moment because of he just like needs a little more. But obviously, like he has that in him. He's a little more. I mean, he's gotta win. He's gotta get there. Like that. It to me, that's a that's some of it. So you, so like, champion, I think, championships matter. Back to the press box, summer edition, featuring right. Adam Candy. Forgot the featuring Adam Candy was coming up because he's in. Ed Grain will talk to us at nine fifteen from the Raiders joint practice with the Patriots. Uh, forget about Kevin Durant. We'll get to him later. I, I need your help on telling me if this is a big deal or not. You might have heard it there in the sports update from Doug. Uh, UNLV is not going to play their game on Saturday on their own turf. So if you're unfamiliar, Legion Stadium, the Raiders have a grass field that they play on. It slides outside to get some sunlight, and underneath it is a turf field with all the UNLV markings that UNLV plays on. The Raiders have a preseason game Friday. UNLV plays an early game Saturday, and I'm guessing they're saying they're not going to have enough time to change over. So UNLV is just going to play on the grass. Steve Cofield uh, reported that it's going to still say Raiders in the end zone. They're not going to get that changed. Uh, Cofield also posted a clip from Marcus Arroyo talking about how UNLV has not been able to practice on the grass. I guess the Raiders didn't let them come in and practice on the grass before this game. Don't know how big of a deal that is, but... Here's, here's what I uh, am curious about, because I went and looked up. What exactly does UNLV's contract with the Raiders say? And in the paragraph about the field, it says, for all UNLV team home games, licensor, that's the Raiders, shall provide licensee, that's UNLV, with an artificial turf at the Raiders' sole cost and expense. So are the Raiders violating their own contract with UNLV by saying they can't get the turf ready to go for UNLV's home game? 
No, uh, I think you're misreading a little bit of what's in there. The, the idea behind that particular passage in the agreement between the Raiders and UNLV is that the Raiders are buying them a field, right? They're buying them a field. <laughs> There's a problem when you can't use that field. But yes, uh, the, the issue there comes down to the change over time. And I believe it's been a few years since I lived and breathed this thing. I believe there's something in there about a minimum of uh, change over time, somewhere between 12 and 24 hours. That so uh, that, that that's, is that's the issue. It's specifically written out in for UNLV games before Raider games. There is it, that's all about UN because there's a clause in there specifically about UNLV has to be done by 11:59 p.m. There isn't one the other way around. They did not make one for when the Raiders play before a UNLV home game. That clause is specifically about UNLV getting the hell out so that they can change over for a Raiders game, not the other way around. But it applies in logic, right? It, it applies in logic that the Raiders are going to get what they want ultimately. And if it prevents UNLV from playing beforehand from the Raiders being able to get their field in there, the flip side probably then applies to say, well, the Raiders have their field in there. They don't feel like moving their field. Also, how much of this goes back to the fact that we've seen uh, what the field has looked like from soccer right. and the field already looks like hell. And so if the Raiders were playing on a really good field, I don't think they would let UNLV use it. And I think that's probably the bigger issue for UNLV. Like, Obviously, you want to play your games with, uh, you know, it's saying Rebels in the end zone, not Raiders. There's a whole paragraph in here about UNLV being allowed to make the field look like a home field. And so they're not going to be able to do that. But that, I don't think, is the bigger issue. The bigger issue is how bad the field looked two weeks ago for the last preseason game. And apparently, they're going to change the grass out before the Raiders' first home game of the season, which means the field looked terrible. Two weeks go by, the Raiders are going to play Friday night, and then the UNLV is going to turn around and play Saturday. That feels probably going to be atrocious for UNLV to play on Saturday. And look, there's precedent for this too, right? When I used to cover the Arizona Cardinals, the Cardinals as the pro team would go in the day after an Arizona State game. And when I tell you that Sparky, the Arizona State mascot who has a pitchfork, at midfield was putting the pitchfork through the Arizona Cardinal head. <laughs> it was the most beautiful metaphor for Cardinals football you could ever have, but we've seen shared fields before. It can be done and it can be done safely. It's just another reminder that this is the Raiders stadium that they were only required basically by their parents to say, hey, you got to let your little brother play with the toy too. So UNLV plays six home games this year. Two had to be moved off of Saturday to Friday at the Raiders' request. And now this one, UNLV will have to play on what is most likely going to be a very bad field, grass field, that is not their own turf, which means the Raiders are making good accommodations for UNLV football on exactly three of their six home games this season so they are very much the little brother they might even be they're like the step little brother they're not even the full-blooded little brother the step little brother of the raiders